Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. So just a brief recap on where we were. Uh, last time, two weeks ago, we finished chapter 11. And as we've been saying all along through our study through the book of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11 form the first major section of the book of Genesis. Uh, it is often called primeval history. Uh, it is called that because in those 11 chapters, you are covering roughly 2,000-ish years of history from the moment of creation to the point where Abram is called out of Ur of the Chaldeans to come to the land that God will show him. We see there the story of creation. We see the story of how God placed Adam in the garden, how he gave him his wife, Eve, how he made a covenant with him, how he promised him life if he would obey and death if he would disobey. We saw that uh, shortly thereafter, uh, the serpent had invaded God's garden temple and tempted Eve and Adam, and they uh, disobeyed God, caused him to doubt God's word, caused him to doubt God's goodness. So they disobeyed and they plunged the whole world into sin. The curse came upon him, uh, the curse of the land, the curse on the serpent, the curse on Eve in childbearing, the curse on Adam, on his labors in the land. But in that curse, we saw a glimmer of hope. We saw that uh, ray of hope, that light at the end of the tunnel where you get that promise in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman uh, would come eventually and crush the head of the serpent how Eve would eventually, through many, many, many generations, Eve would give birth to the Savior, this promised one. And we saw how uh, sin uh, grew in the world, how the first murder is recorded in chapter 4, the, first re the second recorded sin, uh, the first murder, where the two brothers, uh, one kills the other. So where Eve thought that perhaps... Abel would be the one, or maybe even Cain would be the man. Uh, we find out that Cain fails, and Abel, of course, is dead. And then Seth comes, and then we see the line of Seth traced from Seth all the way down to Noah. Then we see the wickedness in the world growing during the time of Noah, and God brings a judgment. God brings a judgment upon the world at that time to uh, wipe out all that has the breath of life in their nostrils except for Noah and his family and those animals that God would bring to the ark. So we see the story of Noah, the flood, the judgment, which is a picture of a greater judgment to come. Jesus and the writers of the New Testament point back to Noah, and oftentimes when they're referring to the final judgment to come, the, uh, the judgment that will come when Christ returns and and the earth will be rolled up like a scroll, and it will be remade and made anew out of fire, they often, when describing that, point back to the days of Noah, as in the days of Noah. 
So it, it is a picture of the final judgment. But God preserves Noah, brings him off the ark into a quote-unquote new creation. The world that he steps into off of the ark is very different than the world he stepped out of when he went onto the ark about a year before. And God makes a covenant. He makes a covenant not just with Noah, but with all living things and with the world. And he makes a covenant to not destroy the world again by the waters of the flood. And then he gives a promise. Uh, that he gives a command to Noah to be fruitful, multiply, and promises to bless them. And then we see that. Chapter 10 shows how the sons of Noah repopulate the earth. But we notice that they're divided, and we find out why they're divided in chapter 11, the first nine verses there, where you have the Tower of Babel incident, where um, the gathered people had gathered on the plains of Shinar and had uh, de- decided upon themselves to build a tower, to ascend uh, to God on their own. Well, God comes down and in a milder form of judgment, uh, confuses the languages and causes them to disperse. And then we see uh, another long genealogy, a list of names in which now we're tracing that line, whereas before everything came down to Noah, Noah has three sons. Now we're sort of looking at Shem, uh, the line of Shem, and that is traced from Shem all the way down to Abram. And we see another list of ten generations. And, of course, we also see that the lifespans begin to shorten and that uh, eventually we end with Terah. Terah is the father of Abram, the father of his son Haran, and the father of, uh, drawing a blank on the name, uh, Nahor. Okay, there you go, Nahor. Abram, Nahor, and Haran. It was while... Abram was in Ur, he gets a call. He, you know, the call that we see here in 12 was originally given to Abram when he was in Ur of the Chaldees. We see this uh, in Joshua in the book of Acts. that We see that God called your father Abram when he was still in Ur of the Chaldeans. And um, some of them get ready and they move and they get about halfway. They get halfway, they come up to another town called Haran, not the same as the son that Terah has. And that's where Terah dies. And then we find out that Tara lived up to about 205 years old, and that's where we pick up. So we've got that primeval history, and this is all really setting the stage now for the second major section, which is going to cover the rest of the book of Genesis. Now, we still have these minor uh, points where you've got these, what I call the Toledotes, the genealogies. You know, this is the genealogy of Tara. You see that in chapter 11, verse 27. And that genealogy is going to take us all the way through to about midway through chapter 25. And oftentimes what you see when you see the genealogy of somebody, it's really talking about his descendant. In this case, even though it's the genealogy of Terah, we're looking at Abraham, okay, or eventually Abraham. Um, so this is the next, <coughs> excuse me, the next major section. We're calling it patriarchal history. And it's also the next Toledot. It's the genealogy of Terah. As I said, will take us through chapter 25, verse 11. Now, this is a turning point in redemptive history. What do I mean by that? Because what you see here, what you're, you're going to see here, is now God is going to begin to work through an individual. He's going to call one man, Abram. And through Abram, he's going to build him into a great nation. And through that nation, you're going to see the blessing that will come to the world. He's going to fulfill that promise he makes in verse 3 through Abram, through his descendants, through the nation that will come from him. Now, you have on the back of your outline this diagram I gave you here. And if it looks busy, well, don't worry about it. We'll try to go through it. This is my first attempt at trying to look at the covenants in the Bible. Now, right away, you're going to see a couple of things here. At the top, you got this pactum salutis. You're like, what's that? You're speaking in tongues now. That's not even English. And you're right, it's not English. It's Latin. But I have the English there in parentheses. It is the covenant of redemption. Now, you're like, well, I don't see that in the Bible. Well, it's implied in the Bible. And by that, I mean the pactum salutis, or the covenant of redemption, is... Uh, the covenant that is it's sort of an intra-Trinitarian covenant is where God the Father and God the Son 
agree to redeem a people. Now, you could find this in the Bible plenty of places. Uh, if you've been with us in Sunday school, we've been going through the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3, 4, and 5, you see there that before the foundation of the world, God chose us, that is, the church, the elect, the people of God. He chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. You've been with us through our time through the Gospel of John. Many, many times Jesus says, I have come to do the work of him who sent me. My Father sent me into the world, and I'm doing his work. Well, what work is that? The work that, of redemption, the work of atonement, the work of salvation. So theologians come up with a title for that, and they, they call that the covenant of redemption. It is, it is the Father and the Son covenanting together, uh, to save a people. God will give a people to the Son. The Son will uh, purchase their redemption, and the Holy Spirit will apply that redemption to them. Now, again, you've got it underneath all that, so I put that on the top to say that pretty much everything we see in redemptive history is the fulfilling of that covenant. Now, underneath that, that's why it kind of over, it covers over everything. Underneath that, you've got two main sections. On the left, you've got the covenant of works. And again, you're not going to see that language specifically in the Bible. So I've got underneath it the Adamic or the Edenic or the creation covenant. This is the covenant we see God make with, Abr- or sorry, with Adam in chapter 2. He places him in the garden. He gives him a commandment. He says, work the garden, guard it, keep it. And do not eat of this tree. I've given you two trees. There's the tree of life and the tree of of the knowledge of good and evil. And you can eat of any tree except this one. Do not eat of that one tree. If you eat of it the day that you eat of it, you will die. And implied in that is if you were to obey, you would not just live but have uh, what we call uh, everlasting life. He would have been ushered into glory. So we call that the covenant of works. Now, some people don't like that language, and that's fine. The covenant made with Adam, the covenant made in Eden, the covenant of creation, however you want to call it. It was a covenant that God, an arrangement that God made with Adam uh, that was based on Adam's obedience. And the reason it's based on Adam's obedience is because at the time before the fall, Adam could obey. Adam had the ability to obey God. This is pre-fall. Now that main line there after that, this is post-fall. After the fall, we are now again under a different kind of covenant. It's hinted in Genesis 3.15 where God promises that a a one would come, a a man would come, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Um, We call that the covenant of grace. Again, language you're not going to find those words in the Bible. But underneath that, you've got Uh, What I've got there is Old Covenant, New Covenant. The covenant of grace is promised in the Old Covenant, and it's fulfilled in the New Covenant. And under the Old Covenant, I put the Abrahamic Covenant, which we're going to look at today, Uh, the Mosaic Covenant, which if we finish Genesis, we might just go right into Exodus, and we'll look at the Mosaic Covenant there, and then eventually the Davidic Covenant. Now, there might be a little bit of pushback here. Um... I call the Abrahamic Covenant part of the Old Covenant because what you're going to see, particularly if you want to just peek ahead just a touch, uh, in chapter 17, verses 9 and 10. Because in the book of Galatians, Paul talks about the promise made to Abraham. And, And there's a promise. We're going to look at that tonight. And that's the gracious part of it. But there's also a semi-conditional part that we see here in chapter 17 verses 9 and 10 where here you see God said to Abraham now he's his name has been changed it's changed in this chapter as for you you shall keep my covenant you and your descendants after you throughout your generate their generations what is the covenant verse 10 this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you every male child among you shall be circumcised verse 11 and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Um, I'm trying to find the... 
Okay, if you just drop down to verse 14, and the uncircumcised male, so if you fail to, to, to uh, obey the covenant, which in this case is just circumcise the male children when they're eight days old. Uh, if you fail to do that, the uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So the covenant that God gives to Abraham, he expands. In, he, he, they, the covenant is introduced here. It is ratified in chapter 15 when God walks through the animal parts. And it's sort of spelled out a little bit more here in chapter 17. And while the promise of salvation is there, the righteous shall live by faith. We'll see that when we get to 15. Here he's saying circumcision is, in a sense, the condition upon which your descendants will inherit this land. And then that will get expanded when you get to Moses. It's not just circumcision, but now it's the law. He gives a law, and if you obey the law, then you can stay in the land. And then when you get to David, it's going to sort of focus in on the king and if the king obeys the law, and if the king leads the people in righteousness, then the land will flourish. And if you read through the book of Kings, you notice that if the king was good, God blessed the land. If the king was bad, God punished them. And eventually there was enough evil kings that they just, you know, all of the curses that you see in Deuteronomy chapter 28 come to fruition. They are exiled. They have effectively become covenant breakers. So even in this Old Covenant, which is conditional in a sense. That's why I've got their works principle. I put works in quotes. It's not a covenant of works. But there is this do this and live kind of mentality. There's this obey to stay in the land. It's all kind of tied to the land there. Uh, this is what Paul will later say in the New Testament when he says, you are no longer under law because that covenant has been fulfilled in Christ. You are now under grace. So in the New Covenant, what was promised promised here in chapter 12, uh, promised and foreshadowed in the Mosaic Covenant with all of the sacrifices that point to Christ, uh, promised again in David when uh, God makes a covenant with David. He says, you shall not lack for a son to sit on your throne. And we know that none of his actual earthly descendants after him, Solomon and following, were that one. We know that that one is Jesus, the ultimate son of David. So, Jesus, you know, in fact, you could probably draw a line from each one of these connecting them to Christ. The promise is made in these covenants that, are, that form the Old Covenant, and they're fulfilled in the New Covenant. And then undergirding all of that, um, you've got, I put there, the Noahic Covenant, which is, it's not a salvation covenant. That's why I put common grace. Uh, not to say that grace is common. But the, the phrase has a meaning to it that means that this is a, this is a grace that God gives uh, to believer and unbeliever alike, right? What does he promise in the Noah covenant? Seed times and harvest, summer, winter, all these things will continue in their cycles as long as this covenant is in effect. So that undergirds all of this. That allows... God now to make this covenant with Abraham, which he will eventually expand in the Mosaic and then focus in on the Davidic and then fulfill when you get uh, to Jesus. So I give this to you tonight because we'll probably be referencing this over and over again. So um, like I said, this is my first draft. Um, I don't know if you notice in that line there where it says the covenant of grace, I tried to make a dotted line. I probably should have made that dotted line all the way down. Um, what I mean to convey by the dotted line is that while you can distinguish Old Covenant and New Covenant uh, in the covenant of grace, they are distinguished, but they're not separate because the old points to the new and the new fulfills uh, the old. So I just wanted to kind of walk through that diagram uh, tonight like I said, I don't, we're not gonna, I'm not going to quiz you on this, okay? Uh, but it's just a handy reference. This is how I'm seeing the biblical covenants, because you've got the biblical covenants here, the one made with Adam, Abraham, Moses, David, Noah, and then eventually the new covenant that Jesus mediates. Um, so, as we look at this passage here, as I said, this is a turning point, because God is going to initiate now this covenant of grace with Abraham through the promise. And we're going to see that expanded in chapter 15 and then chapter 17 
Uh, and then it's reiterated multiple times, both to, to, to Abraham, uh, to Isaac, to Jacob. Uh, and then when you get to Exodus, you know, God will say to Moses, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one with whom I made all the covenants, and so on. But just as we look at these verses tonight, um, what we're going to see here is that the Lord calls Abram to be the vehicle through which blessing comes to the world, right? To all the families of the earth. Noah, or Noah, Abram is, <laughs> Abram is that man whom God is calling and through whom God is going to use as a vehicle to bless the families of the earth. So we're going to look at it in uh, three parts. Uh, the bulk of it is going to be in verses 1 through 3, the call. Then we're going to see the response and then the promise. Not that there's no promises in verses 1 through 3, but he makes an explicit promise in verse 7. So the call, the response, and the promise. So in verses 1 through 3, again, we get the call. Again, if you remember at the end of the last chapter, chapter 11, uh, we're introduced to Terah and his family. They're living in um, uh, what would be modern-day southern Iraq, Iraq, uh, in that plain of Shinar, in that area uh, between the rivers. It's uh, between the Tigris and the Euphrates. If you've got a Bible map in the back of your Bible, you can find that there. Um, it's called Mesopotamia, which is just means between the rivers. Uh, it's southern Mesopotamia. Now, they're not God followers. They're not God fearers. Even though they're in the line of promise, even though he's, uh, Terah and Abram are descendants of Shem, they are at this time not God followers. They're not God fearers. Again, we can, I can point you to when Joshua, right at the end of the book of Joshua, he is exhorting the people after they've conquered the land, and he's reminding them. He says, remember when the God of your fathers called our father Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans when he was still following other idols, when he was still an idol worshiper. So idol worship, false religion, um, would have, you know, probably some kind of, uh, you know, Mesopotamian type of, you know, religion, some early Babylonian, pre-Babylonian religion there uh, is, is being worshipped. You know, perhaps Marduk and those those kinds of gods. That's what Abram, Abram was. And God calls him out of that. He calls him out of that, calls him to a land, and then uh, Terah, Abram, and Lot move. They leave. Uh, Nahor stays behind. Now we're going to see Nahor again later because Nahor is going to be uh, the descent or the ancestor of all the women that Abram's sons marry. <laughs> You know, uh, so when Isaac, uh, when he finds a wife for Isaac, he sends Isaac back. Well, actually, he sends his servant back to Haran, to this area, to get a wife from him. And he runs into the family of Nahor there. And then when Jacob flees, he goes back to Haran. And that's where he finds Laban. And, and, and he's a descendant of Nahor. So that's where we're left with at the end of the last passage. Now we're told that Abram and Sarah were, Sarai were childless. You see that in verse 30 of chapter 11. Sarai was barren. We looked at that last time, how barrenness seems to be a pattern with the wives of the men who are in this line of promise. Um, and, and there's a reason for that, okay? <laughs> the, the reason for that is to show that this is the line of promise, and promise is fulfilled by God alone. God will open these wombs. When the, in the case of Sarah, when she's much older, when she's almost 100 years old, she's going to give birth. Imagine that. Imagine giving birth at 90-some-odd years old. Uh, I would imagine they were, at least their 90 is, you know, you, could, you, know, you know how you hear people say, oh, well, you know, 50 is the new 30, you know, today. Well, maybe back in those days, 90 would have been the new 40 or something. I, I don't know. But she was old, right? The book of Hebrews says when she was long past the time of childbearing. You know, and, 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 and even Abram was you know, thought to be dead. You know, uh, they had the child. The child of promise, God works alone, right? And we're going to see this when Abram's faith is tested, uh, when he and his wife argue about uh, this promise and they try to work it out on their own. 
God says, no, it's not going to be that way. <laughs> you don't need to fulfill my promise to you. I will fulfill my promise to you. Uh, you don't need to make an Ishmael. That child will come. We'll see that with Rebecca. We'll see that with Rachel. We'll see that going on. Even in a sense, Mary, though she's not barren, she gives birth as a virgin. Child of promise comes by God's work alone. Now we notice, again, they were called while in Ur, but then they move and they only go about halfway. Now they, they, they don't go straight through, right? Because if they were to go straight through, they'd be going through a desert. and You don't want to be traveling through a desert. So they follow along the river and they go up north a little bit, north and west, and they hit a town called Haran, which is in northern Mesopotamia, and that's where they stop. And then Terah dies, and that's where we come to here in this passage. So we see, again, perhaps this was a, two, a two-stage call. Perhaps God called Abram when he was in Ur, and then when he only got halfway, and after his father dies, God still calls him. He calls him again. Go. Leave your family. Leave your father's house. And go to a land that I will show you. So we see that call coming again at the beginning of chapter 12. And in a sense, it comes, quote-unquote, out of the blue, right? Because, as we said, you know, Abram and his family would have been idol worshipers. You know, and then, you know, I'm just trying to picture this in my own mind. Imagine minding your own business. You're just doing your thing, and all of a sudden, I don't know how he heard it. Was it vocal in his ears? Did he hear it alone? Was it audible for anybody else who might have been there? But you hear this call. Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. So we see that call. And as we look at God's call to Abram, we're immediately struck with something new that is happening in redemptive history. Now, God has been speaking throughout Genesis 1 through 11 up to this point, right? Uh, how, how was creation? How did creation come about? God spoke, right? God speaks to Adam. He makes the covenant. He says, don't eat from this tree. God spoke to Noah, build an ark. God spoke to Noah again, get off the ark. God comes down and confuses the languages of Babel. I don't know if he spoke to them, but you hear the inter-Trinitarian conversation, let us go down and see what's going on down there. But here you've got a specific call to Abram. This is different. Right? This is very different because he's calling Abram specifically and he says, Leave your home, go to a place that I will show you. And I made the joke last time, you know, it's sort of like the classic male thing, right? You're, you're in the car with your wife and you're driving and you don't, don't know where you're going and your wife says, why don't you stop and ask for directions? You know, and the man says, no, nah, no, nah, I know where I'm going, you know, that kind of a thing. Well, he goes. Now again, think about this. Abram's a, a, a pagan, right? He is an idol worshiper. The call that God gives him initiates Abram's response of faith. If God doesn't call him, Abram doesn't go. It's only because God called him. He called him out of, out of his idolatry, called him out of his home, called him out of everything that he knew, everything he was familiar with, every, all of his friends, his family, his, I'm assuming his ancestral family, at least going back a few generations. Leave that. What's that? Exactly. The same as to us. This call is the same as the call that God makes to each one of us. Now, first we see in verse 1 the command. Go, get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. That word there for country is the same word for land, so get out of your country. That word there is Eretz in the Hebrew. And to a land, that word is also Eretz. So get out of your Eretz and go to another Eretz. Go to another land, and I'm going to show you the land that he will reveal to him. Leave your father's house. This new era of redemptive history begins with a call to Abram to separate himself, to leave his idolatry, to leave everything behind. Again, as Byron was saying earlier, it's the same call that God makes to each one of us to leave those things that, were, that we were once accustomed to, to leave our sin behind, to leave our our own way of doing things, our own uh, goals and dreams 
Set those aside because God is calling you to separate himself from his family, to separate himself from his land and his past. God's calls often call us away from the familiar to an unknown. Right? God calls us from the familiar to something to an unknown. But it is also a gracious call. It is a call that takes faith. It is a call that Abram responds to faithfully. You think of Ruth. We went through the book of Ruth and the ladies. We went through the book of Ruth in our ladies' Bible study. What did Ruth say when when Naomi was getting ready to go back home? She says, I want to go with you. I want to leave everything behind. I'm going to leave my family. I'm going to leave my land. I'm going to leave uh, my country. I want to go with you. I don't know what it's going to be like, but I know I want to be with you. Do not leave me. Where you go, that's where I want to go. Where you stay, that's where I want to stay. Where you die, that's where I want to be buried. That's how Ruth responds to Naomi, even though Naomi keeps telling her, no, go back home. Go back home. There's nothing left for you here with me. Jesus even says that himself, right? He says, no one has left father or mother or brother or sister or possessions who will not receive a hundredfold in this lifetime and in the next life, everlasting life. Jesus calls us out of darkness. Jesus calls us out of our old lives to leave that behind. And sometimes he doesn't reveal everything all at once. That's why it takes faith. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, it is a walk of faith, not of sight. If Abram knew exactly where he was going, it wouldn't take faith. (laughs) Right? It takes faith to go where you don't know where you're going. So we see first the command, go Now, second, we see the promises in verses 2 through 3. And here you see, I will, five times. You could probably imply a couple of more I wills in there, too. But at least explicitly stated five times, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And perhaps you could say, I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this forms, again, the backbone of that Abrahamic covenant, the initiation of the covenant of grace that I was showing you there. This is the backbone of the covenant. It's this promise, right? That's why it's grace. It's a promise. Paul will say in Galatians 3 and 4, the promise cannot be annulled by the law. That's what the Judaizers were doing when they you know, they had valued the law of Moses over all things, and they thought you can earn some kind of self-righteousness before, before God and be accepted on your own behavior. And Paul's like, no, because the promise was given 430-some-odd years before the law was given. And the law cannot annul the promise. God makes a promise. God is going to keep a promise. He promises here. This is the backbone of the Abrahamic covenant. And Theologians come up with fancy names, okay? This is, it's in the form of what they call a land-grant covenant. You're like, what does that mean? Well, you've got the king, God, promising a land, giving a land to a subordinate, Abram. I will give you this land, right? I will give you this land. So it's in the form of a land-grant covenant. God has promised a land in verse 1. And now he promises to make Abram a great nation, a great nation. um, You got that word there, goy, which means the nations or the peoples. Uh, This is a promise of offspring. Okay, so not only am I going to give you a land, I'm going to give you offspring. I will make of you a great nation, a mighty people. Now this nation begins with one man. Okay, one man. Remember, Abram means exalted father. Eventually, he's going to have his name changed to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And he, you know, at that time, it's like I only have one son, Ishmael. <laughs> you know, it's like you're going to have to you're going to have to be busy here, Lord, if you're going to give me a multitude. But we're going to see that this is this will be a multitude. But it begins with one man whom God calls out of idolatry. So here again, you see. In a sense, the world, you know, God has been working, you know, through the world, and now he's focusing all of everything 
on one man, this one man, Abram. Now this is a promise that he reiterates. Now, aren't you glad God reiterates promises? <laughs> because we forget, we, we, our faith weakens, uh, we doubt. Uh, you see here, though, uh, you know, we could just trace this a little bit. If you just flip over to chapter 13, verse 16. All right, I will make of you a great nation. Chapter 12 here, he says, I'm going to make your descendants as the dust of the earth. How much dust is in the earth? How much dust is in your house? <laughs> There's a lot of dust on the earth, right? I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Look again at chapter 15, verse 5. The dust of the earth wasn't enough. Okay. He brought him outside and said, look toward the heavens and count the stars. How many stars in the heavens? How many people remember Carl Sagan? Billions and billions of stars in the heavens. If you are able to number them, so shall your descendants be. Flip over again to chapter 17, verses 5 and 6. No longer shall your name be Abram, exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, father of a multitude. For I have made you a father of a multitude, or many nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. Look again at chapter 22. Verses 17 and 18. This is after uh, Abram was called to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac. And he was faithful in doing so. And God stops him, of course. And then afterward, he says in chapter 22, verse 17, Blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven. And as the sand. And so now he combines it. First it's the dust of the earth, then it's the stars of the heaven. Now it's both the stars and the sand in which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, reiterating that promise of blessing we see in 12, verse 3, because you have obeyed my voice. We can, we can go on. There's more, but those, that should be enough. God promises, and then he reiterates the promise multiple times to Abram because Abram is like all of us. Abram has a weak faith. Abram lives in the flesh. He deals with the sinful nature like we all do. And he falls and he fails, yet he is still called the father of the faithful. And here we see him uh, being promised that he will be made a great nation. We'll see how that is fulfilled in a moment. God also promises to bless Abraham, or Abram, sorry. So I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. You see blessing multiple times. I will bless you, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. That's a, that's a promise of protection. Those who bless Abraham, Abram, I keep saying Abram, Abram, <laughs> Abram or Abraham, those who bless him, they receive, in a sense, what I, you know, you can call it like a splash effect. Uh, so, you know, they, they get a blessing. Now, it's not always a salvific blessing, but you know, you see the story later on in uh, Abram's life uh, in chapter 20 when he again goes into an area and lies about who Sarah... Well, he doesn't lie. He, it's a half-truth, which is a lie. <laughs> uh, he lies about Sarai, say you're my sister and not my wife. And then when God speaks to Abimelech, he says, don't touch that woman because that's another man's wife. So then... Uh, Abimelech says, you know, he calls Abram and says, why did you lie to me, and so on and so forth. And then in his obedience to Abram, Abram blesses him. And God blesses them by opening the wombs that he had closed a little while ago when Abimelech had taken Sarai into his harem. So God will bless those who bless them, and he will curse those who curse him. Promise of protection, but also this promise of blessing and I will make your name great. God will exalt the name of Abram. Is Abram's name great? From a human perspective, yeah, right? We talk about him. He's mentioned all throughout the Bible. 
Um, yeah, exactly. But contrast this, if you will, if you remember in chapter 11, verse 4, what were the peoples of the earth trying to do? They were trying to make a name for themselves. Let us make a Now that name, the word there for name is, is, is the word for reputation. Okay, it, it means name or reputation. So they wanted to exalt themselves. And God then... Um, brings them low. He humbles them, right? God humbles those who exalt themselves. But here, God promises, I will make a name for you. You don't need to make a name for yourself. I will make a name for you. And then we get that great promise there in um, verse 3 at the end. Third, we see the promise of blessings to all the families of the earth, all the families of the earth through Abram. Uh, will be blessed. That word family there uh, is the word that speaks of clans, families. Again, if you remember in chapter 10, when you see that table of nations, um, I pointed this out a few times. Uh, You see this in verse 5, verse 20, and verse 31, how the nations, the peoples, right? You know, it goes through the the sons of Japheth, and then it says... um, They were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, same word, into their nations. Verse 20, these were the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages and their lands and their nations. Verse 31, these were the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages and their lands, according to their nations. Families, now here God says through Abram, all the families. What are all the families? Well, everyone who comes from all these people in chapter 10. They will be blessed through Abram. How? Because through Abram comes the Messiah who will bring salvation to the world and will solve our greatest problem. So just looking, recapping this one point, the Abrahamic covenant here is I'm calling it the inauguration. Again, it was promised in Genesis 3.15 with the seed of the woman, but here... It is inaugurated, it is launched, it is begun here in chapter 12, um, the covenant of grace. God initiates in Abram the plan that will bless the world uh, in Christ. Um, You you can turn with me, if you will, uh, to Acts chapter 3. This is Peter's uh, sermon on Solomon's porch after they cure the man who was lame. At the end of Peter's sermon, in verse 25, Peter says to the, the, the crowd that had uh, gathered, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. So there, Peter, calling upon this promise in Genesis 12, verse 3, signifies that Jesus is the one through whom all the families of the earth are blessed. You see this again in Romans 4. Romans 4, verse 11 where Paul here is talking about how Abraham was justified by faith before he received the sign of circumcision. In Romans 4, verse 11, Paul here says, And he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of, of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them. And the same thing in Galatians chapter 3, if you remember our study through Galatians in Sunday school. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8.
Here, Paul, again arguing about justification by faith, says in verse 7, Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So what Paul is saying is when God makes his promise to Abraham, he's preaching the gospel. Right? You're like, well, where? Because through him, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How? Because Christ will come through him. He is the seed of Abraham that we will see later in this passage. He is the one who will come and bring blessing to the world. All right, I said the first point would take the longest. Secondly, let's look at Abram's response in verses 4 through 6. So here we see, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he had departed from Haran. So this is where I think you can make the argument that this was a two-stage call. He was called in Ur, and then called again once his father was dead in Haran. I like to call this, uh, this is, I bar, I'm borrowing this from Martin Luther, but he calls it the hounds of heaven. Okay? The hounds of heaven. They will chase you down. Think of Jonah, right? The hounds of heaven chased Jonah down. Jonah's called to go prophesy to the people of Nineveh, and he goes in the exact opposite direction. So God sends a wind, he sends a whale, he sends all kinds of things to bring Jonah back. Well, here, God is not content to leave Abram in Haran. No, he says, get up. Go to the land that I will show you. The hounds of heaven are chasing Abram down. So Abram continues the rest of the way to Canaan. So then, verse 5, Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son. So it's the three of them principally, plus all of their possessions that they had gathered. They must have gathered quite a bit there. Plus a lot of servants, the people, uh, the souls that they had acquired in Haran. And they departed to go to the land of Canaan. And so they came to the land of Canaan. So we're told here, Abram was 75 years old. So now we've got a little bit of a marker, a time marker, because we know Abram, Abraham lives to be 175. So from this point to his death in Genesis 25 is a 100-year time span from this point on. He is, he is relatively old, though not near death. Um, he takes Lot with him. Uh, Lot, you know, probably Abram feels uh, responsible for Lot, Lot being his nephew. Lot probably figuring, well, I might as well go with you because what's left for me here, uh, I don't want to be here by myself. So they go. And it was also the many servants and the livestock. So again, God had already blessed him while he was there with a lot of, of uh, possessions. And they come now to the land of Canaan, the land of promise. I was reading in a commentary on this, uh, particularly verses 4 through 9, and they were talking about, I forget what it was called, but it was uh, something on, upon which you can hang things that symbolize the names of Bible, you know, the, the character of Bible characters. So, you know, if you were going to put something up for Noah, you might put a rainbow or you might put an ark. Well, they said for Abram, you put a tent and you put an altar because what you're going to see in the life of Abram, is though this land is given to him, he is not going to own any of it except the place where he buries his wife at the end of her life. That's the only part of the land of promise that Abram actually has possession of, and he has to buy it. <laughs> you know, so his entire time in, in, in Canaan, he is a pilgrim. He is a wanderer. He's a sojourner in the land that God promised to him, living in tents, from tent to tent. We see that uh, later on as he pitches his tent here. He pitches his tent there. He is a nomad. He is a pilgrim in the land of promise. Again, in a lot of ways, like us now. We are pilgrims in this period of time. We are, in a lot of ways, like Abram, in the promise. You know, we've got the promise but it hasn't been fulfilled yet. In fact, there's another book I'm reading that's talking about the life of Abraham, and it's called Living in the Gap Between Promise and Reality. And I love that title because that's exactly Abram's life. He is in that gap 
He's been promised something, but he himself will not see the reality of it with his eyes. Okay? It's something that will not be realized until the uh, sons of Israel actually conquer the promised land. At the end of the book of Joshua, then we, we read that then the promises of the Lord to possess the land have been fulfilled. God fulfills his promises on his timing. Not on Abram's timing, right? Not on uh, Isaac's timing or Jacob's timing. Not even in Moses' timing. The the gap between promise and reality. Now first, the first stop of Abram is in this town called Shechem. Uh, It's north of Jerusalem. Uh, Shechem itself will play uh, a big role in the lives of Abram's grandson, Jacob. (laughs) Um, You know the story of Jacob, right, uh, he comes back from, the, from his time in, uh, with his, uh, his uncle Laban, and he settles in Shechem, and that's where uh, his daughter is raped. And then that's where his sons, Simeon and Levi, play the trick on the sons of Shechem and essentially slaughter the entire town. And then Jacob's like, you've made my name a stench. <laughs> we need to leave now because now they're going to come out and kill us. So it's going to play a big role in the life of Jacob. But as he passes on the land, through the land, he settles here near this terebinth tree of Morah. Uh, perhaps is believed this is an old Canaanite uh, worship place. Um, it, the, the name means like learning or teaching. Um, and then we're told that the Canaanites are dwelling in the land. They're in the land. Again, remember, when we looked at chapter 10, the descendants of Ham, right? And then you had all the Ites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the, Jer- the Jebusites, the Terevites, the, the Gigabites, the Kilobites, the, <laughs> the Termites. All the Ites were there, okay? All the Ites are there. They're in the land. These are the people that eventually Abram's descendants will cast out will conquer, will wipe out, but not fully. But the descendants of Ham are there. The Canaanites are in the land. In other words, this is the land of promise, but it's not Abram's. We mentioned this before. It is not Abram's yet. It is occupied. But step one is complete. Abram is now in the land, but there are people there already, the very people the Israelites will evict. But then note how Abram is doing all of this Uh, by faith. I want to look at Hebrews chapter 11. As we go through Genesis, we'll probably be popping back and forth to Hebrews 11. Abraham gets the biggest section in uh, Hebrews 11 talking about um, it's called the Faith Hall of Fame. I don't know if I like that title, but It's talking about all the people who have lived their lives by faith. We already saw about Abel, Enoch, uh, Noah. But in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, verse 8, verses 8 through 10, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. How did Abraham do this? By faith. God called him. Abraham responds in faith. Faith is a response to the call of God. He goes out in faith. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. Abraham was a pilgrim. Abraham was a nomad in the land that God said, I will give this to you and to your descendants. He lived by faith in a land that was promised to him as if he were a foreigner. Dwelling in tents as a nomad with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him in the same promise. And then we get this beautiful verse in verse 10. And we're going to look at this in a moment uh, in another context a little bit later. How was he able to do this? Again, by faith. For he waited for the city which has foundations, who build, whose builder and maker is God. Faith as the chapter of Hebrews 1 begins, it says it is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things unseen. So, you know, things hoped for are not realized. Faith is the substance of that thing hoped for. 
Faith is the evidence. It is the thing by which we know that the unseen things will come to pass because you have faith. And what was Abram's faith looking forward to? Not just this earthly land that was promised to him, but a heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. And we'll expand on that in a moment. But anyway, we see here step one is complete. Abram is in the land, and now finally we see the promise. Go back to Genesis 12, verses 7 through 9. The promise is mostly in verse 7. Now we come to the part of the covenant with Abram that will form, as I said, the basis, as I was saying earlier, it will form the basis of both the Mosaic and the Davidic covenants because all of them are tied to the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram, verse 7, and said, To your descendants, better translated, to your seed, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed going still on, going on still toward the south, or he might have toward the Negev. Um, so there you have those verses. So here we see that the Lord appeared. The Lord, in some way, whether by dream, we're not quite sure. Uh, Hebrews 1.1 says, In the times past, God spoke to the fathers in many ways, and in many fashions, dreams, prophecies. Uh, this was a theophany. We're not told the exact nature of the theophany, but it is a theophany. God appeared to him. Uh, we see this uh, later on in uh, Genesis 17.1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, chapter 18, verse 1, Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting there in the tent in the, uh, in the heat of the day. Uh, the Lord appears to him. The Lord appeared to Jacob in chapter 32, right? You know that one, right? That's the wrestling match that Jacob has with God where uh, God puts Jacob's hip out of joint and gives him his new name, Israel, which is the one who struggles with God. And I can imagine uh, Jacob wore that name and that injury. <laughs> well, it, it certainly carried on with him the rest of his life. Um, he was certainly a man who struggled uh, with God. God appeared to him on the way out. God appeared to him on the way back in. In fact, he, uh, Bethel, as we see here, is where Jacob uh, rests and camps out on his way out to, uh, away from uh, Esau and the family. Uh, and he says uh, that's where he gets the, the, the vision of the, the ladder and so on. But we see here the Lord appears to Abram some form of theophany. And as Abram has set foot now in the promised land, God promises to Abram that to your descendants, to your seed, to your offspring, that's what the word means, zerah, means seed or offspring. King James has seed, ESV has offspring. He will give this land. This is a promise that God will reiterate, as I said many times. Now we, we looked at the descendants earlier, um, there's plenty of verses here about the land. Chapter 13, verse 15. Chapter 17, verse 8. I'm not going to go through those. We'll just uh, stipulate that those <laughs> promise the land as well. The land is crucial to the people. Why? Because God is going to build a nation. You, for a nation, you need a land, right? You need a region for this, for this people to dwell in. And this nation, this land, again, as I said earlier, will serve as a vehicle through which God will bring the Messiah into the world. Now, again, if you remember, we spent a lot of time on this in our study through Galatians. And if you weren't there in Sunday school, then come to Sunday school. You can hear more <laughs> stuff than what you hear on a Sunday morning. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul makes this big deal about saying to the seed, right? Because New King James translates it in Genesis 12, verse 7 as descendants. Because that's what it means. I mean, it can mean that. That's, but Paul is saying, no, to your seed. And it's one, right? He says singular. Even though that word seed is what we call a collective singular, it's a singular form of a word that means many. 
that Paul in Galatians 3, verse 16 says, Now to Abraham and to his seed, and again, if you have New King James, they capitalize the S there, which is a big, you know, ding, 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 we're talking about Jesus. Now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. And he does not say into seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. This promise here that God makes to Abraham is to Christ. Christ will be the fulfillment of this promise. It has a near-term fulfillment when the Israelites conquer the land and, and occupy it. It has an ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And the land is more than a geographical region. We looked at this, again, remember I, we looked at Hebrews 11, verse 10, where Abraham was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Um, later on in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, where here the author says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. And then uh, drop down to verse 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, that is a, a heavenly kingdom, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and a godly fear. And again, chapter 13, verse 14. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. The land promise that is made here, as I said, earthly fulfillment to Israel and the nation of Israel when Joshua conquers the land, but ultimate fulfillment to Christ, referring to the heavenly Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. The appearance of the Lord prompts then Abraham to worship, or Abram to worship. You remember when Noah steps off the ark, what's the first thing he does? Builds an altar and he worships to the Lord. He starts to sacrifice all those clean animals that God gave him. Here, now that he's in the land and he's going from place to place, what does Abram do? He worships. He hears, he hears God's voice. He hears the promise. He obeys. God gives him a theophany, and he responds by setting up altars. And he sets up a couple of altars. And in a sense, what you can see here is, in a sense, Abram is laying claim to the land that God promised him by putting these altars in this pagan land, saying, this land is God's land because he has promised it to me. And I'm going to, in a sense, claim it by making altars and worshiping to the Lord, the one who called me to this land, not to the pagan gods whom you think exist and whom you think protect you in this land. In a sense, he's laying claim of the land. And here we see Abram calls on the name of the Lord. That's kind of uh, echo of what we see at the end of chapter 4 when at the end of the line of Seth we see, and then people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So then to bring this to a close, as we see here in this passage, we see God call Abram and initiate the covenant of grace with him. And we know that God had to call Abram because Abram would not have gone on his own. God has to initiate. He has to call Abram and bring him out of Ur to the land that he will show him. He has to separate him from everything he has known and brings him to a place that Abram has to receive by faith. It's the same thing as we mentioned earlier how God calls you, how God calls me. He calls you out of what is familiar and says, go and do this. And we respond in faith. Abram will be a great nation through whom blessing comes to the world. Of all the people alive, God chose to accomplish this work through this one man. Abram was not special. Again, he was an idolater. It's the same thing that God says to the people of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy through Moses. He says, God chose you not because you were more numerous, not because you were special, more holy than anyone else. God chose you because he chose you. God chose you because he is fulfilling the covenant that he made with your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God chose you because he set his love upon you before you were born. The good news is that we are recipients of this blessing the blessing that God promises here that all the families of the earth shall be blessed, we are the recipients of that. 
We are the ones who receive this blessing. Abram came in the fullness of time, right? As I like to quote from Galatians 4.4 for Jesus. Abram came in the fullness of time. And uh, the seed of Abram, I should say, came in the fullness of time to redeem those under the law, to receive uh, adoption as sons, right? God calls us. Jesus comes as the seed of, of Abraham and he comes to bring redemption, and he gives us the privilege to call God Father, and by whom the Spirit is now in our spirits, and we are given the privilege to cry out, Abba, Father. The promise to Abram and his descendants becomes ours through faith, as Paul will say in Galatians 3.29, you are sons of Abraham by faith. Right? Abraham had many sons. Abraham was a great nation, not because of direct um, descendants through the flesh. He was a great nation because God is now bringing this message of hope, the gospel to all nations, to all tribes, to all tongues. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord is a son of Abram. Abram is indeed the father of a great multitude. So I'm going to stop here. Uh, next time we'll look at the rest of chapter 12, Lord willing, in two weeks. Um, as we see Abram, the great man of faith, have his first, <laughs> his first little crisis of faith. Uh, we'll look at that. And, and again, I think that's just a wonderful testament to, you know, Abram is just a guy like, like we are. You know, he's a guy who, has a, who, who can stand strong at times, and he's a guy who can fall the temptation at times. But we'll close here.